Downstream, a podcast about the present and future of streaming media. This is episode 11 for February 22nd, 2022. I'm Jason Snell, joined as always by Julia Alexander, Senior Strategy Analyst at Parrot Analytics. Julia, hello. Hey, how are you, Jason? I'm doing great. How are you? Can't complain at all. Great. That's good. Um, And hello to all the listeners out there. I don't usually do that. I don't know what I'm doing, but uh, it's episode 11. You know, we're settling in. We're we're making it work. We were pre-recorded this, so if any... um, as you're listening to this, if any huge media news happened in the last four days, you know, we'll talk about it in two weeks uh, because I have a vacation. So we're doing a little pre-record here. But, you know, there's plenty enough for us to talk about, honestly, in the last 10 days since we recorded our previous episode. Um, so let's uh, let's start with some follow up. Um, we've been talking about sports and watching sports on streaming and the Super Bowl happened. It was on NBC. Yes. So it was on Peacock. And... Uh, it seemed to go well. It seemed like they they handled it. I think so. We watched it uh, ironically on YouTube TV. I think we started there, and then what happened was because we are, you know, those darn millennials who share accounts. Uh, a bunch of people kept trying to watch the Super Bowl with their own Super Bowl parties, and it kept kind of trying to log us out. Mm-hmm. So I switched over to Peacock about I think halfway through the game. And it was great. Like same thing that like the best thing is that there's been no update from my end or I don't know about yourself or anyone else who's listening about Peacock. It's just been steady. Yeah. And the Olympics, uh, which we talked about last time. Also, I haven't had any uh, streaming problems with that. However, I, I after praising it, um, I heard from several people who who um, first off, there are ad server problems. This seems to be the case at least yeah. in part, is that they keep showing the same ads. I know uh, you've seen that ad for the Batman a lot. Um, I've now seen that ad a lot, too. Uh, and I don't have the ad version of Peacock, and yet I keep seeing it. And I think what's happening is that they're they're trying to figure it out. I, I appreciate that NBC seems, seems to be trying, since I have the ad-free version of Peacock, to not show me the ads that they're rolling through and, like, auto-jumping through breaks and stuff. And I appreciate it. It doesn't always work right. Yeah. But I, I think they're trying and and they've made so much progress that we've got to give them credit for that. But they definitely seem to have some ad server issues. And of course, then there's the classic streaming ad insertion issue, which is they only have the one ad to play, apparently, and you get so sick of it or the three ads to play. Um, and that's that's never good. So the Batman yeah, in, in theaters would... soon. <laughs> I would I would love to be a fly on the wall in the NBC ad unit meetings where they're talking to their advertisers and they're like, we can put you on Peacock or we can, you know, put you on linear or we can put you on both. We can put you on USA, like whatever, wherever they want to go. Like, I would just be so interested to know if there is advertiser demand specifically to be on this on the Peacock side mm-hmm. or if advertisers are kind of like. We can run some there, but we really want to be on linear still where we think we'll reach the most audiences and NBC has to kind of, to your point, figure out the ad inventory side for both their linear product and then for the streaming product. Yeah. And they've got sort of general purpose inventory. I would imagine that when they're selling ads for uh, the Olympics, that part of the package is for Olympics on Peacock. And probably if you're selling ads into a sitcom, you probably are also going to get impressions in that sitcom on Peacock or, you know, and and like that. But, but uh, it's, yeah, it is interesting to see. And they do seem to just, as somebody who used to work in a a business with ad server issues of our own, uh, I I recognized it immediately. I'm like, they have ad serving (laughs) problems. They're, they're having ad serving problems. It's the, it's the internet that I know what I'm seeing here is their ad server is misconfigured or they put the markers in the wrong place or something is just out of whack and it's it's frustrating as a, a viewer when that happens but my guess is that they're gonna here, here's a, i'm gonna make a bold prediction here um uh, they're gonna pay attention to their ad tech and get it fixed because uh nothing gets attention better than than ad tech because it's uh making money like that's like the as an editorial person <laughs> we never got the attention ad tech it's like oh you mean something's broken and it's costing us money let's fix it and they fix it so i imagine they will make the their peacock ad tech a well-oiled machine by the time the next olympics roll around yeah i mean it's where the money is they they care about that it turns out um also a little 
uh, second piece of follow-up is just, uh, it's more of a name change. Uh, Viacom CBS had their kind of dog and pony show. They they talked about a bunch of their initiatives and what they're doing and that they're, there was a, a really perceptive piece, I think, on Puck, uh, where you write about how they did, they've done everything that the, uh, that, that the stock market seems to want from a company being a streaming company and their stock went down, which is like, but we, we did all that you asked for. And it's like, yeah, but are you going to really make it or not? Or are you just going to be for sale? Anyway, in the midst of all of that, they changed their name. And it's fine because I could never get the hang of saying Viacom CBS. So now they're Paramount, where it's like it's all the way around. Like Paramount is now the name. It's the name of the service. It's the name of the company. Paramount Global, I guess. But everybody's just going to call them Paramount. And it's fine. I like it's. I like that mountain. I like that logo. It's it's all good. Just uh, it's easier than Viacom CBS. That was a mouthful. Paramount's Paramount Plus is going to be a fun phrase mm. for reporters to write out. Paramount Global is Paramount Plus. Maybe that's why the Paramount global is there. Global's Paramount Plus like, will be a fun phrase. But yeah, I agree. I think this was the issue when they were originally branding their service when they came out and mm-hmm. they were like, we're going to go with um, Paramount Plus, which everybody was kind of like, well, of course, what else would they do, right? This is We talked about this on the show. It's, it's like branding is such a, a hard thing to get right. And if you don't have – if you're not Disney um, and you don't have an HBO, yeah. like you go with – you go with your, your big – your kind of most generic – all-around encompassing global brand that's not necessarily targeted at one audience, so Nickelodeon or um, BET, for an example, which are huge, or Comedy Central even. Um, And you kind of go with like, well, we also have movies, that's a big part of us, and we have Paramount, and we sell the Paramount Network, which is home to basically Yellowstone. Um, And so I think that's all they can do. And by rebranding the company as Paramount, I'm assuming that they're just trying to make that branding really stick. It is a fun moment with the stock market in general for entertainment companies because everyone is just outside of Disney really is forecasting slower growth across the board. And so all the stock has kind of been down and up and then down. Um, but it, it, they're all doing decently, you know, like Paramount Plus came out and said – or. You know, Paramount came out and said Paramount Plus. See, it's going to be fun. Yeah. Uh, has 30, I think it was 38.2 or 39.2 million subscribers. Like, you know, it's not th- nowhere close to, I think Disney has 45 million in the US, then but, there's more globally, but it's not good. terrible. Yeah. yeah it's not terrible Plus. at all. <laughs> yeah. It, it's pretty good. And I suspect that that will continue growing as they really pull back on exclusives, as they start licensing out less. This mm-hmm. was the kind of big strategic shift we saw during Paramount's big event was. For years, CEO Bob Ackish said, you know, we have too much content and we're going to license because we make a lot of money on on licensing content. And everyone said, well, if you're going to build your streaming service, it seems like you kind of want to have those exclusives. And so mm. for a long time, Viacom CBS built up Netflix. Like they really were like, hey, we're going to give you Criminal Minds and NCIS and uh, Supernatural and all these shows that Netflix really thrived on and built an audience around when they were coming up. Um, and they're still heavily watched on Netflix in the US specifically. And now Viacom CBS CBS, uh, or now Paramount, rather, under Backish <laughs> is going, well, you know what? Actually, we're going to pull back. We want yeah. South Park back at the end of 2025 when HBO Max is deals up. Like, we want all these things and we want to grow on it. So, you know, nearly 40 million subscribers after about a year, you know, pulling in some CBS All Access, pulling in some other subscribers uh, that were already there and growing at a decent speed with the exclusive content coming on board. That's pretty good. The only thing they have to fix really is, I think, their technology. It's still not great. The yeah. platform is still not super fun, but good start. Yeah. And then um, something else that we've touched on a lot. I, I was thinking the other day about how um, I, I worry, right? Because we were 11 episodes into this thing. And, I, and I, I think to myself, are we covering the same things over and over again? But I think the right way to look at it is there are some key like facets to this issue, uh, these issues that keep coming back around, but they all change as as they go and so it's like a recurring segment almost which is do we do we bundle or do we roll it all in and we talked about that regarding disney last time we need to mention again that of course viacom cps now paramount has showtime as well as paramount plus and one of their announcements was about this whole like meta bundle thing where they're going to still sell showtime as a separate thing but they're also going to put all that Showtime content in the Paramount Plus app. So if you pay for Showtime as an add-on for Paramount Plus, you don't need to go out to Showtime's app 
in order to see it. It'll just be there with the other stuff. And this is very similar to the to what Hulu is doing a little bit with ESPN Plus, and it is what Disney has done with Star, where they put the Star content in the Disney Plus app everywhere but the U.S. Basically, so now Paramount gonna get used to that paramount has said yeah we're gonna do that with showtime so they're not merging showtime entirely into paramount plus they are they still view it as a a, 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 an extra thing that you you bundle in but as a user who pays for both of them now i I don't need an extra app like i I, yeah put it all in one app and and that and that gives them as you've talked about that that uh that brand extension where now if you've got a show on Paramount Plus that has a natural connection to something on Showtime in the Showtime library, you can actually show it to people and say, how about watching this next instead of having it to be like, eh, it's in a different app. There's nothing we can do. Yes, exactly. I mean, it's just it's, it's funny. Like uh, we've said this a bunch in the um episodes before this but it really is true like streaming platforms are effectively a combination of a discovery tool and an accessibility tool right like you can access what you want but you can also discover things um and it should be extremely simple um in future episode podcasts i will rant about amazon's Mm. use of comiXology lately uh and and how they have not learned from amazon prime video but um this example of Paramount doing it with Showtime is, is a great one. It's kind of what Disney is trying to do with ESPN Plus and Hulu, which is the idea of like, why don't we just make things available inside? Yeah. So we're not asking people to go outside and, and, you know, sign up for something else, but also be in a second window. They have to open up another thing. Instead, it's like, we want you to access this even at an additional cost. You can come through it via one app. And this is what, you know, Apple and Amazon have done really well. Like it's what Amazon Prime Video Channels does extremely well is like, you can just add the channel onto Prime Video and you have access to it. Um, and now what Paramount is saying, and I'm very interested to see, you know, kind of what they do with their, um, options to subscribing but i in the way that hbo kind of left amazon and and uh for that reason i'm very interested to see if the inclusion of showtime on paramount plus leads to increases in showtime's uh subscriptions my bet is that it will yeah, e- even so. if just slightly but you know not having to seek that out is a huge lowering of uh, a barrier of entry it's, it's it's erasing it and they can do you know there's marketing they can do right they can put up when Yellow Jackets season two comes out, they could put up season one on Paramount Plus, and or or they could put up episode one. Or like, there's so many things you can do where you're leading people into the now you need to pay for Showtime too, three dollars a month. It's just a little extra add-on, and they get a little more money out of you. And and you're also as a, it's true if you're paying for it, it's just so much more convenient to not have it in two places, and it's just better. Yes, it, it's it's better. So there's going to be more of that. Um. Okay, speaking of brand evolution, I I wanted to talk this week, and I'm moving it up a little bit in our rundown here because we were talking about uh, brand evolution with Paramount and and that mountain. Uh, Disney Plus, we we talked about it last time. Uh, We got a lot of feedback about it. You wrote about it on Puck as your column. I love to see the like synergy of we talk about it, you write about it, we talk about it. It's great. And people send in a lot of examples of the Pam and Tommy, uh, again, movie about a sex tape that is just Disney branded throughout Europe. It's just a Disney Plus original. And no no fear of uh, the argument that, the, oh, you're polluting the Disney brand uh, by putting things that aren't just for kids in it. And you make the point on this podcast and in your in your column that like Disney modern Disney is you know that ship has sailed like modern Disney knows that it needs to be more and as, as you say reach more quadrants than what people think of as the traditional Disney audience and I think people in the US haven't quite gotten that yet but it's very very clear and all the feedback we got from people showing the Pam and Tommy promo is like they're over it like they're over it they are going they're going to expand the brand and uh, that's uh, that's something that they know they need to do, and they're just they're not worried about it. They're going to do it. 
Exactly. I mean, their whole focus under, you know, the kind of changing of the guard that happened from Iger to Chapek is, as we've seen with different CEOs at Disney, when there's changing of the guard, the el- the elasticity of the Disney brand uh, expands. Huh. It, 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 you know, Eisner, yeah. before Iger bought, uh, Michael Eisner came in and bought ABC because he was convinced that the only way to scale is a legacy media brand in, you know, 1997, 1998, whenever that was, maybe before that, um, I think it was before that. Uh, it was to it was to have a network, and so he bought ABC. And ESPN is another one where ESPN, you know, in nineteen sixty, nineteen seventy, nineteen eighty, doesn't make sense as a Disney brand, but is now core to them. Um, then you have Bob Iger who comes in, and Michael Eisner you know, passes on Marvel. He goes, I don't yeah. think Marvel is the Disney brand. And as we've said on this show, like Bob Iger buys, you know, Marvel and Star Wars and they, they are the Disney brand. Mm-hmm. Like it's the, what you think of. And so, you know, now what they're in the streaming era. And so the streaming era is attacking a, a much wider audience. It's basically saying we're going to funnel all the different audiences we have via our other sources. So, you know, we had the sports, we have the kids content, we have ABC, which is general entertainment programming. And on top of that, we now have 20th century Fox or 21st century Fox. We have all this kind of adult fair content and instead of saying we're going to figure out a way to funnel this to individual audiences via licensing deals via theatrical releases alone we're going to have an app that will combine all these things and so what that means is that the, the in order to be a legacy media brand of tomorrow, you have to kind of build upon the being a legacy media brand of yesteryear, as I said in the piece. And the idea of existing in a silo does not work. You have to kind of build upon the silo. And so we will eventually get to a place, I'm positive, where something happens with Hulu and Disney Plus that combines them to an extent. And I don't know what that means for the live TV option. That's always the thing people say whenever I bring it up. They're like, what about live TV? Yeah. I don't know. But that's something that the Disney people are paid a lot of money to figure out. Um, you know, th- th- that's a healthy business for them, as, as they've said. So they, I don't know if that's true, but they've said that. It continues to grow year over year, apparently. Um, and so they, they got to figure that out. But more important to them is how do we not get forgotten? We know HBO Max expanded upon what HBO was. Paramount Plus and Showtime will expand upon what Paramount is. You know, NBC Universal will try to figure that out for themselves at Peacock, and Apple and Amazon will figure out their own identities. Disney can either reign as this kind of kids provider, as this family entertainment provider, or look around and say, hey, Netflix is actually doing better on us in the preschool side. Netflix is gaining traction on us in the kids side. And they also have general entertainment for the adults who, when the kids are done watching stuff, we want to watch something too, and we're going to pay for one service. And so Disney kind of goes, how do we become a brand like that? And the answer is, instead of licensing out Pam and Tommy to a competitor and giving them possible Emmy Awards or giving them, you know, attention and and possible dollars from consumers, it's let's integrate it into the app and let us slowly elasticize our brand. And so I think we will continue to see that in a way that is very fundamental and has happened many times over Disney's history, um, but is always very fun to see play out. Yeah, I, I think people who have a static idea of what Disney is, yeah, they 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 are ignoring the steps that Disney has taken. Uh, and you made a great point. A- ABC, ESPN, and then Marvel and and Star Wars. Uh, Disney brand is always growing. I do think that at some point they may want to create a classic Disney sub-brand yeah. for their children's entertainment. And that's, I, I threw out, I think on Twitter, maybe it was here, that um, I wonder if maybe they m- might even do a like Walt Disney or something. Something that is like using the Disney name, but like saying, no, no, this is the, this is the, the kids Disney. This is the, yeah. with a picture of Mickey Mouse. And it's like, this is the four kids part of Disney. But because at some point they're going to need a, a sub brand of some kind to differentiate what part of Disney is for kids, which seems like a, a growing up around Disney seems like a weird idea, but that is the, that's where they are. That The brand doesn't mean what it used to mean. Yeah, I mean, if we go back to the 80s, um, I believe it was Roy Disney, and I can't remember who he did it with, but Roy Disney and his counterpart launched Buena Vista, right? Like, they launched this yeah, so they could right. do more PG-13 movies, because they couldn't do it under the Disney brand, and Disney, like, it was a ba- right. it, Disney and, distributed and, the stuff. And Touchstone, right, was a Disney... And Touchstone, yeah, sorry, I'm thinking of Touchstone. Yeah, it's, yes, yeah. thank you. Thank you for correcting me. I'm thinking of Touchstone. Um, exactly, and they came out and they said, we're going to do it on under this label, and all Disney is saying is, we cannot silo it in terms of the 
theatrical branding. If we, if we think about what yeah. that was, right, the main difference was that these movies were still happening, but they were going to theaters, they're going to VHS and DVD, and all that it was was a different banner. So Disney distributed it, the studio was different, but they all made the money from it. Now Disney is going like, we are in the direct-to-consumer market. We can't just have these as like theatrical releases that are different from our animated right. theatrical releases under a different banner. They all have to be on Disney+. Plus. Disney is our strongest brand now, so we we can't hide and and say no 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 it's not it's not really Disney it's like no Disney's the brand for better or for worse Disney is the is the blanket brand for this stuff and and they're not going to be limited so they may have to do the opposite right it's the reverse which is what do we create as a family name inside of Disney because Disney alone has to be broader than that and I don't know. I don't know. And I I mean, I think they'll accomplish it. I think when the minute that they struck the deal for 20th Century Fox, what they had in mind, you know, beyond IP, which is important, and beyond the fact that they were going to consume and take in a bunch of different projects and different creatives and different artists that they could work with, you know, Searchlight is just as important to them to an extent as X-Men and the Fantastic Four or whatever, Daredevil, uh, not Daredevil, excuse me, um, Deadpool. Um, What they also did when they struck that deal was thinking about uh, broadening their audience for direct-to-consumer. That was a core philosophy. It was like, we can't just exist on the Disney brands that we have now because that, I would argue, this Bob Chapek says there's still room for growth there, but I would argue that you tap out pretty quickly there. You can't hit 230 to 260 million on Marvel, Star Wars, National Geographic alone. You, You just can't do it. You can do it if you've got that and then some and you become this general entertainment platform that has mm-hmm. the Disney brand going for it. So you have quality entertainment, you have quality library, and then you also have a little bit of something else for everyone who is either going, I'm not a Disney person, or I like what Disney could do, but I'm not going to pay for it. You put in Pam and Tommy, you put in movies like Nomadland, uh, which I'm sure would, would uh, I think the French Dispatch right now is on um, Disney Plus internationally. You mentioned Get Back, and, and that's a yes. good example that... Internationally, there's everywhere we have Get Back on Disney Plus, yeah. and like, there's lots of stuff in Get Back <laughs> that people are like, oh, well, that'll never be on a Disney thing, and it, it's just it's there. It's I know it's eight hours, so you gotta you gotta sit there, but if if you sit there long enough, you're gonna get a whole. I mean, the, when you start playing Get Back, there's a there's a quite dramatic list of things that you're gonna get when you watch it, including language. Uh, that uh, like there's f bombs in there, and I know they took the f bombs out of Hamilton, but I think they did that more because they wanted to market Hamilton to younger audiences and say, no, you need to watch this with your kids and all that. And so they took the the two f bombs out of it. But uh, get back, they're like, no, it's fine, it's on Disney Plus. So. So, like, they're, they're already there. They're already yeah. there. It, people just don't notice it yet. And, and I, they have to be. Yeah, and I also, I think it's, it's we've, been, we've seen it happen across the film side, too. Like, we, I think about this a lot where in 2014, 2015, right before Avengers Age of Ultron came out, you know, a bunch of the cast members were like, oh, would love to do this, you know, specific arc from a comic, but it's too dark for Disney. And back in 2014, 2015, you could argue that. You can you know Force Awakens hadn't come out yet. Disney, Marvel was still figuring its stuff out. Disney was still very much, you know, Frozen was still the biggest thing post-2013. Like, the House of Disney still felt like the House of Disney from the early 2000s. Then you get into the moment now where you have movies like, you know, the new Doctor Strange coming out that's an absolute horror movie. You have them doing much more. You've got, you know, they're doing a show about uh, a man with borderline personality disorder, which is uh, in uh, canon in the comics, and they're going to explore that. And Disney, you know, Mar- big, Disney's biggest brand of the last decade, Marvel, has grown up. Marvel has said, we want to do more, you know, adult stuff too. And we've got these characters now that we want to take on. Yeah. We want to take on Blade. We want to take on um, Deadpool. Like, we want to do adult stuff. And so Disney goes, why can't we do both? We know that we have older audiences who are into this. And we also know we have kids. And, we w- and we're and we going to serve the kids as we have for the last 100 years. Uh, and we're going to serve. But now we're also focused equally on serving adults via our uh, main uh, silos. And then also via what we've in- inherited from 20th century. And also, um, I don't know if we mentioned it on on last week's episode or not, but one of the things that that is is funny about this is the the Netflix Marvel shows are going off of Netflix, and presumably they will be then going to a streaming platform near you. And there's some talk about, well, oh, those are kind of adult and kind of brutal. Yeah. Are they are they going to go on Hulu instead of Disney Plus? And I think they're going to go on Disney Plus because that's where all the Marvel content is, and they'll go with warnings. Um, and I think it's funny that that happened last week, the same time that Kevin Feige came out, and you mentioned it, 
and said Moon Knight is going to be, and the word he used was brutal. Yeah. Um, I, I think this is not a coincidence. I think this is part of their strategy, which is not everything that Marvel does is going to be PG. It's, it's going to be all ages. Some of it, they want to be able to take a range. And I don't think anybody's saying, oh, all Marvel movies are going to be rated R and not appropriate for kids under the age of, of 16. Like that's, I don't think they're going to go there. But I think that the, the Moon Knight may end up being more akin to a Daredevil or a Jessica Jones level yeah. than people expected from Disney Plus originals from Marvel. Yeah. And they're not all going to be like that, but... But this one, I think, is going to be like that. And that's why I think that those Netflix shows will probably have a home on Disney Plus, even in the U.S., when they could put them on Hulu. Yeah, and I think, you know, tying this, tying the what you're saying right now, Jason, back into what you're saying about Paramount, actually, and this kind of huge battle on exclusivity. Um, during Disney's earnings call, Christine McCarthy, who's their chief financial officer, made a comment, um, which is probably the best sense of direction we have for the Marvel shows, that because they decided to stop licensing to certain partners in order to bring exclusives back, you know, they're taking a $200 million hit in the next quarter we can assume a big part of that is the netflix marvel shows um and if those come to disney plus you know you think of also too about like where their priorities lie for certain marvel characters again this is spoiler alert it's been a month or two months at this point if you haven't seen spider-man i'm sorry uh but daredevil has a very small appearance in uh spider-man no way home kingpin had an appearance in hawkeye like they're bringing those characters or some of those characters back in so to not have those to siphon those off from the actual marvel studios film collection doesn't make any sense and yes like there are those shows are still watched people still talk about those shows they still want to watch those shows bring them to disney plus and the last thing i'll say about it is that it almost feels like it's new right this elasticity of disney's brand but this was in development from about 2017 2018 and remember they launched disney plus with the simpsons which even for disney was kind of like the simpsons was you know the show back in the 90s when parents were like i don't know if this is for safe for kids but (laughs) they knew they needed two things in 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 a main show for launch they knew they needed uh snackable tv which people put on before bed and kind of keeps them watching it's you know for me it's for a long time it's unfortunately been law and order it's all i watch before bed mm-hmm. um and it's why i will keep peacock beyond anything else um and two they needed something that wasn't just marvel star wars or kids and the simpsons was the best bet we were like we own yeah. this it's a hugely renowned ip people love it it's a great show let's do it so i think the uh, the elasticity is stretching faster than we could have prepared that we, we as consumers may have been prepared for but disney has been stretching it since you know 2017 mm-hmm. 2018 yeah, not a surprise for them, even if it's a surprise for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about um, the end of the binge. This is another one of our recurring topics, but you know what? I'm going to go with it. This uh, a tweet that I I dug out uh, that I'll put in the show notes from Alan Seppenwall. It's a couple of tweets. Alan Seppenwall, longtime TV critic, now writing at Rolling Stone. And he was talking about the new episode drop of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, on Amazon Prime Video. And he said, it's interesting that Amazon is releasing two episodes per week instead of dropping all of season four at once. Every streamer is gradually kicking the binge release habit. And this show in particular is one the binge always did a disservice to because the distinct and repetitive rhythms of Amy Sherman Palladino's comedy feel worn out the more you're exposed to them in short order. On the whole, the binge release era seems likely to be an anomaly rather than the new normal. And we should also say Stranger Things on Netflix just uh, announced its fourth season. It's going to end with its fifth season, but its fourth season is going to drop in two segments two months apart. So not quite a weekly release schedule for Netflix, which uh, is not surprising. And yet it is a uh, a break in the pace of dropping a whole season at once. So what what do you think about what Alan writes here? Is this is this another thing that makes you kind of lean forward and go, oh Amazon, interesting. You're you know you too are kind of getting away from the the season drop. Yeah, I mean Amazon's always been a really interesting player because Amazon alongside Hulu really kicked off the idea of three episodes at once and then weekly 
And their thought was, or, you know, was three episodes is enough to hook you. It's enough to give you an idea of what the show is. And then weekly is enough to bring you back week after week, which I always thought was interesting for Amazon because it's a site that I open daily to like buy stuff. But I guess for people who are not reliant on Amazon, um, who maybe do not live in big cities who don't want to go to stores um, and, and shop in person, it's a good reason to get people to come back week after week. And for the Amazon Prime video team specifically, it's a good reason to, you know, really ensure that your metrics, your engagement metrics are up and that your own subscriber um, acquisition growth is, is high and you can point that to bigger Amazon higher ups. Um, I think this is it. Like, I think we have, you know, we talked about this a lot on the show. Our data over at Paired Analytics shows this. Weekly releases generate more consistent long-term demand for a show, which is key. If you're building out a show that you want to last more than one season, which most people do, uh, or a franchise, which is, you know, kind of an ultimate goal for a lot of these executives. Um, you can't, it's hard to do that with binge drop. And that's not to say it's impossible. Like Stranger Things, and I'm sure we'll talk about Stranger Things in, in sec two, but Stranger Things is kind of a great example of a franchise that was built out of Netflix despite having a full season drop. Um, but you know, there's that question is Stranger Things is going to come out the same week as Kenobi and there's another show that's coming out right around the same time. Like it's three huge shows kind of back to back to back. And Kenobi will have weekly release. So Stranger Things will drop in, in the middle of it and then something else happens. And, you know, the question about Stranger Things is does that get lost in the noise of it all? When Stranger Things first dropped as the only kind of major franchise binge release, there wasn't much competition with it. It was really competing with movies. It was the idea of like this came out on Friday and you were like, okay, well, I'm going to watch this this weekend and I'll go watch my movie that I want to watch on Friday. Or or I'll do all of Stranger Things on Friday because I'm going to be spoiled otherwise and I will go watch a movie on Saturday, Sunday. And now Stranger Things exists in this moment of like every single week there's a huge series dropping from some major streaming service that you have to compete for attention-wise that are going to do week-after-week release. Um, It works well for a show like Stranger Things that's established, that's, you know, it's coming to an end, that is kind of has this huge built-in base that they want to do more things with doesn't work as well when you're trying to do new stuff. You know, I was saying on Twitter that I hadn't opened up Netflix in quite a while, and I finally opened it uh, the other night to watching Venting Anna, which is the new um, Shonda Rhimes show about Anna Delvey, which is a crucial story to anyone in New York um, who, who or who likes New York stories. Um, and I realized that for me, like, Netflix had not become the de facto. And I think part of the reason that Netflix had not become the de facto for me for a very long time was because my attention every single night was split between streaming services that were releasing weekly shows that I had new episode to watch. So on Wednesdays, I had Man- uh, Boba Fett. On Thursdays, I had Peacekeeper, you know. On t- Mondays and t- Wednesdays, I had, or Tuesdays, I had Law and Order. One of them was like a Law and Order thing. It was constant. It was like there was always something, and I just never found a reason to open Netflix. And so I think what I would love for Netflix to experiment with is the three-episode uh, binge drop or four episode or even half a season drop and then do weekly. I don't know if they'll do that for any of their big shows. I think the idea of binge is so core to them still that and core to the philosophy of Netflix that they won't do it with their biggest series. But I do think that as we've seen them experiment with reality television, um, I think they will start doing that a little bit more um, to kind of really generate long-term interest for some of their bigger original plays. But like their huge... I, I I think while it works well for everyone, I think that identity of a binge drop is so ingrained in Netflix yeah. that it's like hard for them to walk away from. Yeah, but you can see the peer pressure now, right? Oh, like every, yeah. Everybody else is like, mm. I mean, first off, Disney, Disney and Apple especially, and and you know HBO has the legacy. HBO Max has the legacy of HBO, but like everybody new is sort of coming in and saying, we're not going to drop our. We, do you know how much we spend on this? We're going to spread this out, and we want to keep people uh, month to month, and they want we want to keep uh, retaining them and not have them churn. And 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 uh, Netflix uh, looks around and goes, oh, you know. But we we cha- we made people excited about the binge drop, and maybe Netflix is playing a, a different game, and maybe the the closest we'll get is something like the the Stranger Things thing which also breaks over the emmy eligibility thing which allows them that's the big thing to be eligible in both kings but it's also in two different billing months separated by a month so if somebody gets it for stranger things they're gonna you know probably not cancel for the interim month and then bring it back and they make a little more money and we'll see we'll see how it is but i I like i want to keep an eye on that because i'm i'm fascinated by where we're going and it does seem like the binge drop is no longer the default for 
everybody yeah. except Netflix. Well, and I think, too, it's going to be the, the thing I kind of get really caught up with with Netflix is it would be one thing if the and I have to say this every time because every time I say this on Twitter, it's my little mini rant for two seconds. Every time I say this on Twitter, someone <laughs> accuses me of hating Netflix. So I always have to say on Twitter, I think Netflix is fine. I think Netflix's business is still sound. Yeah. I think Netflix is still the leader. I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. But I think there are things now that we can, without question, uh, uh, criticize and ask for more information. And so I think what we're seeing with Netflix is like you're spending $18 billion a year on content, which is therefore forcing everyone else to spend a lot of money on content. That's a lot of money invested on hoping that, you know, even 10% of those shows turn out to be really big things um, and that people are going to keep attention. It's especially hard to do when everyone else is spending a lot of money on their shows, but they're saying, hey, we're going to keep people's attention with like our big IP shows and our big things for like 10 weeks because we're going to release 10 episodes over 10 weeks or eight episodes over eight weeks. And so I think where we will start to see that um, R&D kind of really kick into place with potential different with, with potential strategic shifts and in, in, um, episode releases will be if the stock continues to underperform because mm-hmm. their performance quarterly begins to underperform like continues to underperform i think at that point you get your kind of big shareholders and your big analysts to go in and say what why are you not retaining why aren't you growing is there something that we could do better and one of the examples could be hey why don't you do weekly releases again even with that pressure, I get a great point from you, Jason, even with the peer pressure and the pressure that's going to come in from people who have a financial incentive in Netflix to say, like, figure this out. It's kind of like that core identity to them. Mm. I think it's going to be hard for them to figure out a way to do it for their biggest series. And I don't think it will touch their biggest series anytime soon. And they have the volume, too. I mean, Netflix is playing a different game. Can you imagine if every Netflix series that it released released weekly? Like it would be dropping every week. What's on new on Netflix? It would be like fifteen different shows are new on Netflix this week and next yeah, week. It's, too it's much. most of the same, but some of them are different, and that can be confusing too. Um, so, as much as a binge drop fan as I am, I, or a, a, a weekly release fan as I am, I understand Netflix uh, yeah. with the the saturation of content that they're currently at, um, not wanting to make it even more complicated about what's popping up on Friday. I, I would love, here's my plea, my, my plea. To, if there anyone in the industry works, uh, who if anyone's listening works at Netflix, that's what I'm trying to say. I have a plea. I think if you slow down your content spend even a little bit, I think the others will slow down their content spend. Poor John Landgraf, who's the head of FX, has been saying we're at peak TV for so many years and is now like almost tragically acknowledged that we're nowhere close uh, to peak TV. Um, and I think, you know, personally, I'm at my peak TV. Like I, I, I can't keep up. And so I would like if everyone just took a step back and said, you know what? Let's spend a little less and let's figure out a, a way that this makes it work. Like, I promise you, I think people will be happier rather than everyone watching 10,000 different shows and no one having an idea of what's going on. And then every once in a while, a squid game happens. And we're all like, oh, we can we can talk about this. This is like our unified moment. Um, you can't have cultural zeitgeist if there are too many shows. There, are the, People will watch too many different things. That's my mini rant. That's I'm just I'm so tired, Jason. <laughs> That's good. To keep up. So we we my last agenda item was Netflix, and we talked about a lot of it. You had a you had a tweet though that I thought was quite provocative. And again, you've already said don't hate Netflix, but but you said open Netflix for the first time in a while last night to watch Inventing Anna. Realize that for me, and I imagine many others, Netflix's position as the de facto has slowly and then very suddenly. Uh, disappeared, reflected in its demand market share being down continuously over FY21. I know I've mentioned this before here, but part of it is because I use an Apple TV and Netflix is not in the Apple TV grid. But part of it is just yep. that Netflix it Netflix has become the thing I go to sometimes when I think, oh, I wonder what's on Netflix because there's so much other content elsewhere. And it's not, like you said, it's not like Netflix is bad or, or doing a bad job. It's that Netflix has competition in a way that it's not never had before and and like it, it could be doing the best job possible it's still a different world now where everybody else is playing the same game as netflix 
Yeah, companies love to do this thing where they're like, our only competitor is ourselves. And like, how can we, and that's just, you know, bull. Like, it's like, I, I hate when people say that because it's like, no, you have competitors and they are very good. They've been very good for a very long time. Netflix had the advantage of being first. Netflix has the advantage of locking in certain talent because they were first. Netflix has the advantage of being biggest. That does not mean that Netflix will retain its position as king forever. Again, here's where I put in my little moment saying that I think they'll be fine for a very long time. Um, I think with Netflix specifically, the question is, you know, almost ironically, how do you remain, um, I don't want to use the word relevant, but, you know, kind of cutting edge. How do you remain Mm. cutting edge when everyone else is spending a lot of money to catch up and they have you know, the fact that their legacy brands actually helps them where they have an ability to say, we own South Park, we own the Avengers, like we have these things that we can continue doing and people want to come. And that will help us for a while until we figure out our originals, you know, Disney's kind of figured it out. I think Paramount Plus is on a really good uh, moment. Mm-hmm. I think Hulu is doing great. Apple TV Plus is great. And HBO Max, I mean, has proven itself over and over again over the last year. Um and with Netflix, when your only bet is originals because you're losing all of your licensed content, it's much harder to say we're going to build up a library of 40 years worth of great television and film. Like that's a that's a hard thing to do. It's I said this on Twitter I think yesterday. It's very very hard to make good television. It's very very easy to order a lot of mediocre television, and we exist in a moment where quantity. Has has uh has outperformed quality, but we are now at a wrecking moment uh where quality is the thing people are looking for because there's so much quantity, and so Netflix has really existed with the former for a long time, where Netflix has said we have a lot, and we have the discovery tool, and the uh, the access for you at a pretty good price, and that lasted a really long time. It really helped Netflix. Now, Netflix can't say we make the best television. I would argue that's, you know, HBO and now HBO Max, but they can say we still make good television. I think on the TV front, they're pretty great. They can say we make the best films. I mean, they might, they have some Oscar nominations, but that's like three to five movies out of like 130 movies that they make a year. Most of their movies are forgettable. At worst, they're cringe. Um, and so you're now at the point where if you're Netflix, it's like, okay, we have all this content. Is it doing what we need it to do? This is why whenever I talk really positively about Netflix, I hyper-focus on their international efforts. I think they are light years ahead of their competition internationally. And I think that will, mm. especially as North American audiences really embrace more international content, I think that will become Netflix's next big, like, um, cycle. It will be like this moment of Netflix outperforming everyone again. And it will happen, I have no doubt, because of the international um, content consumption happening, you know, kind of globally. Um, but until until then, until then, it's a really tough moment in the US for Netflix. And they know that and they're figuring it out. And I think the fact that Reed Hastings and Ted Sarandos, their co-CEOs, finally acknowledged competition on a couple of calls where they said, hey, competition is, yeah, it's it's definitely having an impact is a moment where we can finally acknowledge, yes, there is this huge elephant in the room. There's actually six of them. Um, and we need to figure out how to address them and how do we beat them at their own game when they which is content, which they beat Netflix at for years, you know, to end this rant. Netflix made its business on the backs of those companies content. They started doing originals, and now their originals program has really succeeded television-wise. And I think film under Scott Stewart will figure out its identity. But they built their backs on the content of other companies. And now those companies are taking that content back at a rapid pace and saying, no, no, we want to build our own backs. Uh, or we want to build our own, uh, build off our own back. back. So I will stop talking now because I'm mixing up my words. But that's my rant on Netflix. All right. <laughs> it's, it's all good. It's all good. Um, and, and we should mention, I, I, I said it earlier, Stranger Things... Season five will be the last one. There is a promise of a whole Stranger Things extended universe franchising kind of thing. It is coming to an end. It is uh, Netflix's big franchise, like the thing that they found, the the little gem that was just this kind of odd 80s uh, Spielberg, Stephen King throwback show. And it became... Um, a landmark for Netflix. And so it's worth mentioning that it's it's going to come to an end um, in a way, but that I think Netflix has already made it clear that there's going to be more in this world because it, it's it, it's a franchise for Netflix, which doesn't yeah. have very many. Mm-hmm. So pour one out, I guess, for Stranger Things. <laughs> I, 
you know, Stranger Things uh, never really did it for me. I got I got to be honest, I'm a child of the 80s and so I saw I saw what they were doing and I thought, okay. Yeah. But I get I, I get that people love it. It just it, it always I felt like kind of a not quite right homage to that era. I don't know. There was always something about it that felt a little artificial to me. Um, I know I'm bad. Don't write in. <laughs> I already know I'm a bad person. Thank you. Like, let's uh, let's do uh, some let's do some letters. How about that? Let's do I love some letters. letters from listeners. Um, this one's from Jim. Jim says, my husband and I love Survivor and Paramount Plus added Australian Survivor a few weeks ago and then uh, apparently pulled them because they didn't actually have the rights. Very annoying. And he sent in a link to Reality Blurred, uh, which did a story that basically said they put them up and then they took them back down. And it sounds like maybe they didn't understand uh, or there was a mistake. And I just have to laugh. I don't think there's an answer here, but I, I, I'm glad that Jim pointed this out. I also was interested in Australian Survivor and um, in a time when there's also no Survivor on. And come on, people, like, get it together. <laughs> the, the, all of those English language Survivors should be on Paramount+. Plus. They should be. Where are they? And And that they added this and then took it away is hilarious in the sense that somebody really screwed up somewhere. But also, uh, it should be there. Why not? Come Those on. giant binders that people that, that are like in basements where they just go down and they're like, do we have the rights to this? Somebody, to your point, somebody messed up big time. Yeah, uh, that was bad. Very bad. So thank you, Jim. You you made me laugh. Um, <laughs> yeah, this, is from, uh, this is from Dom, and I thought this was thought-provoking. I'd like to ask your thoughts on the future of streaming theater. We've seen Hamilton and Come From Away both debut on streaming while still on Broadway. Normally, pro shoots haven't been legally streamed due to the tour licensing and other ways shows can make money post a West End or Broadway run. But we've seen more and more shows be filmed for public release, especially those ending a popular run. Uh, Aladdin, Waitress, and Prince of Egypt have all been filmed, but no streaming platform or release has been mentioned. Obviously, Aladdin will be on Disney Plus whenever they run out of Star Wars and Marvel content to show. There has been rumors <laughs> of Netflix buying a theater to recreate and film older productions. So my question is, do you think theater will be in the conversation for content for these platforms? And do you have any info that I've missed? Thanks and love the show, Dom. What do you think? This is definitely a interesting like the the come from away and hamilton make you make you wonder like is the theater the next source of great streaming content it's a really interesting question um so there is a, a streaming service that dom you'll know and i'm forgetting the name of it but i think it's literally called like broadway like hd or so it's like called broadway something and you pay i believe monthly for it dom broadway you can hd if, it's, it's, I think it's that. Dom, if I'm wrong, at me on Twitter, uh, send an email, let me know. But I, I know that there's a Broadway streaming app. I don't know exactly how it works in terms of when the shows arrive or all those other things. Um, here's what I will say. I think it makes a lot of sense for Disney to be hyper-invested in bringing Broadway stuff to Disney Plus because Disney owns two Broadway theaters. Disney yeah. makes decent money on Broadway. And if Disney can um, create, if Disney can open up Broadway in a cheaper, much more accessible format to an international audience, that when they visit New York or when those plays come to their cities, they go out and watch it, Disney will do it. At the same time, does, you know, the question, does Netflix, does HBO Max, do they want um, kind of Broadway plays, Broadway musicals? Absolutely. Do they want all of them? Absolutely not. They want, you know, everyone wants a Hamilton. That's why there was a huge bidding war for right. it. I think everybody will want a, um, uh, oh, I, what's the one that I went to? I just went to go see a Broadway play. I won the Tony two years ago. Like, do they want that one? Absolutely. Like, they want the big Tony Award winning sure. musicals. Uh, especially because I think musicals actually, in terms of when we think of even adaptations, so think of what Hamilton was as opposed to like West Side Story. Um, but if you combine those two under one group, musicals, uh, according to like um, my research, have a much longer longevity um, and actually higher valuation on streaming than they do anywhere else. And they do in theater, than they do like on DVD, VHS, like whatever it might be. Streaming is actually a great home for them. And it actually um, leads to kind of lower decay, which is a term that basically means like if it was, you know, uh, three months after it premieres, is there still an audience for it? 
turns out there are for musicals. People come back to them. And so I think streaming will get much more involved with musicals, figure, you know, figuring out the rights to them. I think the biggest issue is going to be they only want the big ones. The big ones come with bidding wars. And I think, you know, Broadway is pretty loyal to the people who have been with them for a long time. Disney gets an easy in because Disney owns the rights right. to all of it. They're they own in. the plays. Like, they're, it's theirs. Um, but for the other ones, I would not be surprised to see more adaptations come to the bigger streaming services. Just not as – it would be like one or two a year year and there'll be big ones yeah i um i had a discussion in i uh, i think a slack uh of of uh, members of one of my, my my things probably the incomparable anyway uh we were talking about uh, theater and streaming and come from away on apple tv and hamilton on disney plus and it sounds like well first off it's very expensive to mount one of these things and you have to not only do you have to forego some ticket revenue because i believe what they do is they take their day off and they take a matinee out of another day and they, you know, and they pay the cast, obviously, a lot of extra. But um, so and then you've got to get the crew in and like it's a whole thing. So uh, a random show is not going to get it. But if it's a hit and they've got an original Broadway cast, that's amazing. The idea that you would put that money in and then you, you, there's a question of like, well, but what about all the ancillary revenue from the touring? And it's like that. I'm sure somebody is going to work it out. But I, I do feel like you now Hamilton is a good example. And I know Hamilton's extreme, but come from away is another good example where maybe what you want to do when your show is a hit is you invest that money on that master you edit it you do all of it and then you put it in the vault as long as you're making a lot of money on your touring company but you've got the original broadway cast and you've got it sitting there as an asset and you know somebody's gonna buy it for you know, if the economics work out for enough money in that bidding war that you talked about, that it's it's totally worth it. I think that is going to start to happen if it hasn't already. I mean, I think that part is going to start where it's like streaming is another revenue source for successful Broadway shows. And you only really get that one chance to capture the magic of the performance with all the people who are the stars before it goes out on tour and they all leave for their next projects. And so... um uh, you know, in that way, I think Hamilton might be a model for this, but Hamilton was a huge hit and it, it's only going to be the huge hits that this happens with. And I will also say for the rarity of Hamiltons that come along, you know, the rarity of, of a Wicked, of a Rent, of a Chicago, like the, the massive ones that have appeal beyond the theater uh, fans, and the theater kids um, whom I love with all my heart. Um the other thing that we have to remember about why certain companies would want to spend a bunch of money on these is not just an investment in the actual musical itself, the adaptation or of the play. And that, uh, it's an investment in the talent. Yeah. It's like Disney wants Lin-Manuel. And so mm -hmm. they go, we're going to pay a lot of money for Hamilton. We're going to make sure you're brought along. Like, we're going to know these things for you. Also, can you help us write music for Encanto? Yeah. Can you, you want to do this? part of the family now. L literally. And I think for uh, for Netflix, it's the same thing. Netflix, you know, did a musical. They did Tick, 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 Tick Boom, which was great. Right. And they bet on Lin-Manuel. And they brought Lin-Manuel in. I think HBO Max, uh, under Warner Media, under Discovery Warner Media, whatever they're called, like we'll do something similar. Same with Universal, same with Paramount. I think they want to bet on the big Broadway talent on the film and TV side, and it's just figuring out which play to go in and do that on. I'm fascinated philosophically, and I don't know where I think different people fall down differently on this, but some people talk about the ephemerality of theater and the fact that live theater is you only see it once, and, the, and then it's there, and then it's gone. And I, I you know, I saw the producers on Broadway with the original cast and that was awesome it's the only time Great I've musical. ever seen anything with the original cast but I saw Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick and the producers and it was awesome um, that all said there is the other argument which is the ephemerality it's like on one level yes it is a magical thing and you can be there on a special night and certain things happen and d does that happen every time the answer is probably it does but you never know um, but it it is if it, if not captured, it is then gone. And and you could argue philosophically that's the beauty of live theater. However, not only is it a business, but not everybody can go to Broadway and not everybody yeah. can see those people. And if I'm an actor yeah. and I, I killed it in that and you just have to take it at everybody's word instead of saying you can get my performance on Netflix I'm awesome. Cast me in your movie. Like there's, there is this other argument that that some of this stuff 
I really wish would get preserved because it is special and magical. And once it's over, wouldn't it be nice to have that document for all the people who want to see it again or who couldn't get there? And no, it's not the same, but it beats the alternative, which is maybe you see it eventually three years from now when it comes to your local theater and it's got a very different set of actors who might be good and maybe you will go see it. But I would argue... You know, having the other thing is is special, and uh, and and now with the economics of streaming, maybe possible. So yeah, maybe we'll see more of it. Uh, yeah, I think it, kind of what we were talking about in our last conversation, this idea that streaming has effectively replaced wide distribution for movies. Um, to your exact right. point, Jason, Broadway is expensive. You know, yeah. like I make okay money, and it's still an expensive night for me. And that's like not in great seats. It's still a night where it's like, okay, we're gonna get transportation to the city you know you probably yeah. want to do some kind of dinner or yeah, lunch you, and then you you're can, doing broadway you can get there without flying too right you could take a train or a, or a cab or whatever to to broadway uh, you know and then there's everybody well, else okay yeah well uh, that's exactly my point and even think about the shows and then think about the touring right so it's only certain shows go on tours because they have exactly. to have the incredible demand and they only go to other big cities like like yes. hamilton goes to toronto hamilton goes to chicago if you are in a rural um um, town but you love musicals or if you or are even, even in, a small in a, city that will get it exactly. if it gets it it will get it late and it will get it exactly. for a couple of weeks and it will still be really expensive yeah being able to watch it and being able to contribute to the conversation and being able to say yes i love this performance that i saw i understand what you're saying is instead of just the songs like being able to have that is so crucial and i think um, Emily Vanderwerf, who I believe still writes at Vox.com, yep. she wrote this yes, great she piece. Uh, she's And she's a fantastic writer. She wrote this great piece a while ago that I always think about, which was this idea of there's an elitism that a lot of people in film took to streaming, which was, I don't want my movie on a stream platform, my movie in theaters. And I, Emily was like, you know, I came from like Nebraska, I think. She's like, I, like, we wouldn't, I couldn't, would not have been able to watch any of these movies. Like, it's just not a thing. And I think that's the same thing that will apply to Broadway, which is like the ephemeral, the ephemerality is beautiful but it's also a little bit like if you can get to it elitist and and inaccessible in a way that maybe yeah i would also argue that uh if you're thinking of and obviously this is business and it's a financial transaction but if if you think and theater seems to be more like this than some other media uh if you think about like the heart and the future of the theater and all of that having beautiful broadway cast preserved for all time for a kid out in the middle of nowhere to watch again and again and dream about writing that or being in the cast or playing in the orchestra like not to not to get all sappy but like i think that's good for the future of the theater to have this stuff be accessible because otherwise who is going to be the future theater fan who's going to be the future actor and composer if that stuff is behind a wall and and inaccessibly expensive so i think that there's fringe benefits to it too Agreed. Um, All right. Well, that is the next to last letter. I have one more and then we'll go. Uh, This is from Jim from Nashville. Hey, Jim. Thanks for writing in. Uh, What is the rationale behind the mixed Prime IMDb product? Prime is free with Prime membership. And IMDb is free with commercials and or maybe a future subscription product. Questions that come to mind that might be a discussion point, maybe if anyone else thinks it's interesting from a business standpoint. Love to your mother's Jim from Nashville. I think it's interesting because this is the mix and match problem with with IMDb on Prime is that you don't yeah. know what you're going to get when you click on a link inside Prime Video is am I going to get ads in a low resolution? My friend Joe Steele wrote a post on my website Six Colors. I'll put that in here too about and it's about Apple TV's universal search because Apple TV doesn't know whether that thing is on Amazon or IMDb TV and he ended up watching a uh, a movie that was in uh, standard def with ads instead of in in 4K and part of it was because Amazon wasn't properly reporting whether it was IMDb or not but I think this exists inside the very confusing Prime Video app where there are a la carte movies for rent and sale. There are things you get with your Prime subscription for free in HD with no ads. And then there's IMDb TV, which is a totally different thing with ads in it. Yeah. Uh, even if you pay for Prime, it's bananas. Yeah. So, I mean, the business decision for uh, IMDb 
IMDb. Oh my goodness, IMDb TV. Please, someone change that. Mm-hmm. Um, is 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 obvious, right? I mean, it's an advertising play. It makes a lot of sense. The a decision to include it in Prime. The only thing I can think of is that Amazon. A company that clearly does not care about user experience on the video side and the comic side, I'm in a moment over it, um, decided, hey, when people search for a movie, it will appear in the app and they will open it and they will watch it maybe because they will click on it and that generates a thing for us. And it's bad. bad. I I wish that they could give you like a decent strategic and I'm sure there is one. The Amazon strategy team is one of the best. They're extremely good at what they do. So I'm sure there's a very good strategic reason for why they're doing it. I, for the life of you, could not tell you. Like I, other than to annoy each one of its customers who are unfortunately reliant on Amazon, and there's many good articles if you Google being reliant on Amazon that New York Times and Gizmodo writers have done to try and prove that they can leave Amazon, but it's very, very difficult um, to leave the ecosystem. Uh, like, I, I don't know. I think for them, it's just, it's all in one place. And it's kind of like, well, here's the movie and it's free as IMDb, IMDb TV. So it doesn't matter if it's on Amazon Prime Video. Uh, but to your point, Jason, to your friend who wrote that Jim g- very Nashville. good blog. Yeah. Yeah, oh, like, and Joe Steele, yes. The, it muddies up search. It's a bad user experience. And I, I think exactly. what Jim from Nashville is getting at here too is it's like, it's not what I signed up for. And no. Honestly, as somebody who's paying and uh, about to be paying more for Amazon Prime, same Amazon. It's really nice that you've got this uh, ad-bearing uh, video service, but as a Prime member, I don't want to see the ads. So, like, either take the ads out or get it the heck out of the Prime Video app. Those are my feelings, I mean, and and they they're like, mm, no, we yeah, <laughs> maybe we could trick you the, into it. <laughs> this is like you know from a business perspective, not from like. A consumer perspective from a business perspective this is the brilliance of amazon right like amazon knows you're so reliant like you just said um jason like i'm gonna pay more for it i and i just said in my head like me too like i'm yeah. also going to do it my partner we live in the same house like he's gonna have pay more for his amazon because we have different amazon like they know people are so reliant on their main product that they can just kind of like do whatever with the subsequent products that kind of help people feel like they're getting more out of this core value proposition um and the experience is bad the experience is terrible and it makes me really concerned um and i've been thinking about this a lot because as i said eight times on this podcast uh the comiXology revamp has not been great for me uh or my sanity um and it's it makes me worried about any future acquisitions amazon makes like because there's clearly or at least it seems to me that there's just no interest in creating good products outside of the main Amazon product, which is fantastic. Like the Amazon Prime Video right. experience from a UI perspective is terrible. Like it, IMDb it is the main product when you when you talk about what the main product is, like the main product is Amazon.com. Exactly. That's the main product. And so yes. culturally, just thinking about this as a tech company for a minute, uh, as a big corporation. Culturally, Amazon is all about marketing products on the web, right? And I feel like you look at their app and you say to yourself, there are probably some very good app developers and designers who care about user experience at Amazon, but they are flattened by the corporate culture because the corporate culture is think of everything like an Amazon web page. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you think about other Amazon products, and I am sure that uh, pals, my my pals from The Verge will give me a little bit of uh, heat for this because I, I know how they sometimes feel about certain things. I think the Amazon, like I like the Echo products, and like like Alexa's great. Like the Echoes are great. Like like the tech products are actually pretty good. The Amazon.com website, to your point, Jason, is their core product is fantastic. It's like these weird things that they acquire to support the main site, like the Amazon.com specifically to kind of be like, oh, well, you can sign into Amazon Prime Video via Amazon. You sign into Comixology via Amazon. Like IMDb BTV is like this whole thing for Amazon. Like they just don't care because it's almost like, well, these are things we're giving you for free. And it's like, well, I, I, but I don't want it. Like I either don't want this or I wanted it when it was what it was. Like I don't necessarily want this as part of an ecosystem where there seems to be very little interest in preserving what made the product great or in trying to make a, a product um, just exists and not really paying attention to it. So yeah. I don't know. I I hope I really really hope that they figure it out because it, it's a it's annoying. It's not consumer friendly, and I I'm sure that they yeah. have teams that have brought up these exact same issues. And it, it maybe it's not a priority. I don't know, but I hope it changes. I 
Yeah, I think there's yeah definitely a cultural disconnect there that goes in the Amazon way is not necessarily the way that you should probably be building the service, but it's that's you get what you get when you get Amazon. I would actually say I have an Echo show, and they make decisions about what shows up on there and what alerts I receive that are also bizarre and bad user experience things, but I understand them from the perspective of Amazon marketing, and it's the same thing. See, it's like they, this is – yeah. This this is the issue though, because I think you just touch you just hit the the nail on the head or whatever the expression is. I always get it wrong. Um, like that's, that's exact that's exactly it. It is you and I can sit here because we are in the industry and go, oh, I understand why they're doing that from this perspective. Like you and I are like, oh, I right. get it. You know, from, I don't like, like it, but I understand why. But it's terrible it's, and it's a bad user experience. And regular people, my wife is like. Why did it just yell at me about that that uh, that we got a package earlier today? And I said, I don't know. It just does what it does. <laughs> and that's and that's exactly. If you think about the really great <laughs> streaming services, that almost you know all of them are trying to all of them are strategically placed for business uh, means. Like we all know that. But HBO Max, uh, well, not, I'm not going to say HBO Max actually, but I think Netflix actually is a great example of a service that really does try to do consumers well. Like it, like it tries very hard to be like. We want you to spend less time searching and we're trying to work on that. We want you to see what's most relevant to you. We want to show you what's new. We want to show you what other people are watching. Like, it's a great app. And I think if Amazon Prime Video was Amazon's core concern, it would feel a lot different. Uh, and same with IMDb. Yeah. IMDb. This is going to be a thing for us, Jason. TV. I'm going to have to I, make like a, a little post-it note. I will but, put a link in um, our show notes to a blog post by my friend John Syracuse called "An Unsolicited Streaming App Spec," in which John, a famously persnickety person, talks about everything that's wrong with uh, with streaming video apps. And it's great if you've ever thought, like, I would like a list of all the things that are bad about all streaming video apps. Read this story because uh, every every service does some of it wrong. Um, and and some of them do all of it wrong. <laughs> so you can, uh, people can check that out and, and report back about, uh, about John's thing. But uh, I thought it was a really good piece about, about user experience. because And I know this has been a recurring theme here too. So many recurring themes on this podcast after only 11 episodes. But one of them is I firmly do believe that over time, user experience in apps for streaming services will get better because everybody will gradually realize that it's their entire interface with their customer and that they might want to put more attention to it. And I think Netflix is absolutely there and we can disagree with some of Netflix choices, but Netflix is there and they've had time to be there. Whereas everybody else was rushing to get their app out and rushing to get new stuff on it and do a new version. And a lot of them are still kind of like figuring it out at a level that Netflix isn't not that Netflix doesn't have issues, but, um, but the rest of them are still not even there yet. And like, I think Paramount, literally like they're lucky they have an app <laughs> so and it's bad but at least they have it now so so we'll see i think it'll get better i think if you're listening to this and you run into just bizarre ui issues it's my favorite 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 thing to talk about just hashtag it in a tweet but why b-u-t-w-h-y i will keep up a tweet deck column that's just checking for but why tweets about streaming interface ui because i it's Truly, there are truly some bizarre things. And, um, and mention uh, mention uh, at Loudmouth Julia on Twitter, or mention uh, Downstream Pod, and uh, we'll 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 see that. Uh, and and it's good. I would love to. I would love to do a roundup of but whys at some point because there are Me so too. many. It's just why. Oh, so many. There are so many. Uh, by the way, if you would like your letter uh, read on the show, if you've got a question for us, if you've got a big but why for us uh send us an email downstream at relay.fm or you can tweet at us at downstream pod love to your mothers we love hearing your feedback uh and that brings us to the end so you can find julia loudmouth julia on twitter parrotanalytics.com you can find me at jay snell on twitter at sixcolors.com and every episode of this show is at relay.fm slash downstream and on your podcast app of choice and we will be back in two weeks to do it all again recur all the segments again watch as the uh, facets change in the ever-changing streaming landscape but until then julia it's a pleasure as always talk to you in two weeks talk to you later jason 